I'd like to extend my welcome to you all today, especially if you're visiting. It's great to have you here with us. You are very welcome. My name is Tim Blaber. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And we've been going through a series called Glorious, looking at the character of God. We've been drawing upon certain aspects and qualities of who God is and really trying to think through some of those. Um, and it's actually a tremendous and challenging task. Thinking about God, trying to accurately describe God is obviously beyond the ability of any human being to fully do, to do it you know, perfectly. But we're instructed to, and we must do it, and it's so helpful for us. And I love how in our worship today, let me just remind you of what came across. Loved it when John read that psalm. His anger lasts for a moment, but his love endures throughout the ages. That's good news, isn't it? The anger of God lasts for a moment, but his love endures forever. His anger is relative to things like evil and suffering and pain. His anger is an expression of his love as his love's resisted in our hearts. His anger does exist, but it's momentary. One day all those uh, wretched things will cease, will be ultimately and forever destroyed. There will be no more pain and suffering and sin and sickness. And what will remain is the enduring forever love of God that we get to forever enjoy and experience. And some of these things we're going to be thinking about together today. Um, Phoebe read the scripture. Let's look at it again in 1 Timothy and we're going to be focusing upon one verse, verse 17, but let's just read it in its context from verse 12 of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, the worst of them... Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we as your children sit at your feet today and we eagerly want to learn from you. We want to hear your voice. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are a good soil for your word to settle deeply into. Bring forth a harvest that would glorify your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help me, I pray, and help us to come away with a reward today a reward that comes from sitting at your feet in that humble disposition, 
eagerly seeking to learn and to love you more. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the qualities that Paul draws out in verse 17, to the king who is eternal, immortal, invisible. So we're going to be thinking about the eternality of God, that God is eternal. And then, I'm actually going to jump ahead, we're then going to be thinking about God who is invisible, and then we'll finish with God who is immortal. We're going to be looking at these three massive characteristics of the nature of God. It wouldn't have escaped your notice that this week we saw the sun. (laughs) Wasn't it nice whilst it lasted? It was warm and it was hot and we even wore shorts and t-shirts for a day or two. Um, And today we've returned to our more customary weather. We love the sun, don't we? If you love the sun, give me a cheer. We enjoy sunny weather. When we plan our holidays, we're hoping for sun. We're hoping that the sun would shine. We're hoping that we won't be disappointed. And you're always nervous when, like us, you've booked a holiday in this country. You don't quite know what you're going to get. We love the sun. We enjoy the sun. In fact, more than wanting the sun, we need the sun. We depend upon the sun. Without the sun, we wouldn't have the beautiful green lands that surround us. Without the sun, we wouldn't have food. Without the sun, we'd be forever bumping into things. We need the sun for its light. We need the sun for its heat. We we need the sun for its life-giving properties. We also know that we can have too much of the sun. I, when I was in my early 20s, went to Cape Town for a holiday in December. It was a miserable, typical gray, wet December's day here. And I was bragging to my friends, I'm off to Cape Town and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be stunning. On the first day, I'm going to go to the beach. And that's exactly what I did. I arrived into spectacular, glorious sun. We headed straight to the beach. And I put suntan lotion on the upper half of my body and just stayed in the sun all day and walked home with fluorescent, glowing red legs. And I have never felt such excruciating sunburn as I did. And the rest of my holiday, I was wearing trousers because my legs were so battered by the sun. We all want the sun. We, we recognize we need the sun, but we also know that we can have too much of it. So when we're planning our holidays, we plan for sunny weather. No one goes for my holiday. I want to go to the sun, right? Obviously not that you could, but the further you get to it, the more unbearable it is. You are finite as a creature. You have an ability to withstand only a certain amount of it. Now, where am I going with this? You're thinking, well, he's a Brit, his weather's small talk. Well, yeah, the last place you want small talk is in a sermon, right? So what's the point? Well, the Bible says that our God is a sun and a shield. So the Bible says, uh, to understand something of God, think about the sun for a moment. God is not the sun, but the sun, like many things in creation, point us to something that is true of God. They're signposts, they're pointers. And actually, the sun's a very good example of what God is like to a certain degree. And of all the things that people end up worshipping in creation, all kinds of... I'd never understood why anyone would worship a wooden pole, but some do. But you can kind of understand why some people might worship the sun because of its power and its brilliance and its, the fact that you have to treat it with respect. There's a sense for us 
that we absolutely need and depend upon the glories of God. We need God's glory. But there's also a sense of we are only able to endure, to experience a certain extent of God's glory before we are at risk of getting burnt. There are certain things of God's nature that you and I are unable to fully grasp or to fully comprehend. And indeed, every moment when God appears to people through the scriptures, there's a sense of him holding back something of his glory because to receive it and to see it fully would result in immediate death. As you can imagine how if you were to suddenly find yourself within a few feet of the sun, you would evaporate instantly. And the sun is nothing compared to the creator of it. And we recognize even in the context of the universe, our sun is a relatively small star. So how great and how glorious is our God. And yet we need his glory. We depend upon his glory. And there's a certain degree of revelation that we can receive today. But there's also a sense in which we're limited. And we need to be limited from the fullness of the, the, the greatness of the glory of God, there are going to be moments today, perhaps even, where you go, hands up, I'm struggling right now with the enormity and the vastness of God. Now, the wonderful news for us is this, the wonderful news. There is a glory of God that we not only can we fully think about and focus on, but that we're commanded to fix and focus upon. That is the glories of Jesus Christ. So the scripture says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. There might be moments today where you go, my head's hurting. Fix your eyes upon that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So we're going to see how there are certain things that that God reveals of himself, which as we were looking at last week, John was speaking last week about God's unchangeableness. We described how there are certain attributes of God that are incommunicable. They're not shared by us. There are things of who God is that are unique to God that we don't share and participate in. There are communicable attributes of God that we do. But the incommunicable ones are very, very difficult for us to get our heads around. Not least the eternality of God. That God is eternal. That God has no beginning. So we're going to start by thinking upon this one. The eternal king. The eternal king. When I was a teenager, I had the misfortune of listening to one of those Christian radio stations late one night. And this preacher gave a very unhelpful illustration, which pretty much scarred me. So I thought I'd share it with you all this morning. (laughs) You're welcome. He described this. He said, I want to describe to you what eternity is like. He says, I want you to imagine the Pacific Ocean, the vast Pacific Ocean. And I want you to empty it of every last drop of water so it goes deep, deep down. Then I want you to imagine that you've trained a bird to take a grain of sand and every 1,000 years to deposit that grain of sand into the depths of the now dry ocean. By the time that bird has deposited sand so high that it reaches Mount Everest, that is your first second in eternity. I was like, oh, that's awful. (laughs) Right, so there you go. That was the illustration that scarred me 
for life. What's the problem? I mean, there are lots of issues and lots of problems with that illustration for eternity. The problem, one of the biggest issues with this is that it's not actually describing eternity. It's just describing endless time. It's just describing time, just a lot more of it. Aquinas puts it like this. Endless time is simply time, just more of it. Eternity must differ from it essentially. To state it another way, more of the same thing is essentially the same thing. So when you think of, and when we think of eternity, we think of God being eternal, and we think of eternal life, if you think of these things primarily as a measure of time, you're going to get stuck. And you've probably already attempted this. My, one of my kids, I can't remember which one it was, said to me, Dad, I don't like the idea of time just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Sometimes you can feel like that as parents, can't you? <laughs> so, so we have to fundamentally understand what is eternity and what it is and what it isn't. What does God reveal to us about eternity? Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus defines eternal life not based upon endless amounts of time, but upon a knowledge of who God is. This is eternal life. No reference to birds or sand, but knowing God, that's eternal life. When we think about God and God being eternal, what we have to understand is it's not like God is just living in this constant timelessness, just goes on and on and on, this kind of time just goes on and on forever. God is outside of time, is bigger than time, it has no dominion over him, it doesn't reign over him, he reigns over time. Time has a beginning, time has an end. The very first words of Scripture, in the beginning, God created. So, to try and help us understand this, if you can just see this line on the lectern in front of me, we have a beginning here and we have an end here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of time. And then we follow along, we have the age of the, 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 the Old Testament age in this period, and all the events that we read about in the Old Testament, we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ comes into the world here at this moment in the cross. We then have the age of the church. We have the present moment. And then we have the return of Christ and the beginning of the eternal ages. Where is God? God is over time. God's looking over the whole thing. He's not underneath in a sense that he's in it. He's over it. So that in every every moment of time, every moment of history is, is seen as it were as being in the present by God. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. Psalm 90 verse 4. Isaiah 46 says this, I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do 
all my will. He sees it all. He sees it all as present before him. He sees everything that's gone. He sees everything that will be. And he sees what is present. This means nothing takes God by surprise. This means that nothing, it's not like he's stressed out with all of our prayer requests because he's trying to get them all done by a specific moment in time. He is watching over his creation. He's watching over the universe. He's watching over our lives. And he's reigning through it all. And everything that takes place, it takes place according to his will, according to his determination. His timing is utterly impeccable, therefore. Utterly impeccable. Nothing happens by fluke or by mistake. Everything happens, happens because the God who is eternal is ordaining the events that take place in this world. I want to give, now, this all might seem hard to get our heads around, but I want to tell you something. This is incredibly comforting for me, and it should be for you too. There's something I want you to see in Luke chapter 1. I want to just read to you an example of why this is actually remarkable to help you, particularly if you are somebody who is waiting God to answer or respond to your prayers. This is Luke chapter 1. This is the description of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. You've got some verses on the screen. I'm just going to start in verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. We see this happen a lot in the scriptures. Barrenness, old age, and the pain, of course, which is associated with that. And then let's pick it up from uh, verse verse 12. No, verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Just pause there before we go on. Pause there. My prayer has been heard? Wow. An angel has come to tell me that my prayer has been heard. What prayer? What's the prayer that that has been heard that the angel wants him to understand and know about? Then we go on and we read this. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. The answered prayer is, you're going to have a child. We've heard your prayer. But look at his response. Verse 18, how can this be? Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. How can this be? This, uh, it's impossible. It's impossible. Then the angel says to him, 
I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Why is he incredulous? Why is he in disbelief? When he was told your prayer has been heard, this was not the prayer they were ex- he was expecting the angel to refer to. Why? Because Zechariah and Elizabeth had stopped praying that prayer many, many years ago. Many years ago. This is the prayer of their youth. This is the prayer of their 20s and their 30s, maybe their 40s. But they've not prayed this prayer for decades. And in this moment, in his old age, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, we heard your prayer. We heard your prayer. What? They'd given up on it. They'd forgotten about it. What are the prayers that you've prayed that you don't pray anymore? What are the things that you're longing for and hoping for? What are they for you? What are the prayers that you've been longing for God to respond to and to answer? What are the things that you've maybe lost hope in? Listen to me. Listen to me. He hears your prayers. Every single one of them. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like one day. Don't give up on the faithfulness of God. Don't doubt and question the timing of God. We all do it. We all do it. We all have those moments where we're like, God, what's taken you so long to answer this prayer? I'm sure Zechariah and Elizabeth said that. And at just the right time, at the proper time, God goes Now is the moment for Zechariah and for Elizabeth to have their child. Why? Because Jesus was going to come. And this child would be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist makes the way for Jesus to come. Jesus, the one that's coming in to save the world. Jesus, that's coming in to make all things new. Jesus was coming. So there was a perfect moment. The word of God says this. For at just the right time... When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly at just the right time. So in one sense, at just the right moment in history, Christ comes. At just the right moment. And so many things come together at this moment in history. Not least the fact that in the Roman Empire, the most barbaric and horrific form of torture and execution has been devised. 
the most scandalous and shameful and horrific form of execution has been created. At just the right time, Christ comes to have an execution like that. To save and rescue sinners. And at just the right time, God came into your life. And at just the right time, he grasped hold of you and said, I'm going to have you now. Come and know me. At just the right time, heaven, as it were, opened up to your heart and the Spirit of God was poured upon you. At just the right time, at just the right time. And you might say, but Lord, I wish you'd come to me earlier. I wish you'd revealed yourself to me earlier. And the passage that we've just been reading, the Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. I was a blasphemer. We actually find out the Apostle Paul's passion when his life was before Christ was to persecute, torture, kill Christians. And God is watching Paul martyring, killing Christians. And then at just the right time, God intervenes and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he gets hold of Paul and transforms his life. And Paul lives the rest of his life with this acute awareness when he calls himself the chief of sinners, the one who persecuted and killed the church. We read about the thorn in his flesh. Many would say the thorn in the apostle Paul's flesh, the thing he, he was praying to God for three times to remove from him. Many, there's speculation about what it is. We don't know for sure, but many have pondered it was his memories of the persecution of Christians. And yet through his story and through his life, God gets hold of this man and says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use your story. And even in this church, and even in recent weeks, we've heard people from this very platform say, do you know what? My life was like this. If you were at the baptisms a few weeks ago, I mean, I had tears in my eyes. Hearing people sharing of their pain and of their brokenness. Sharing of their life without God. And then sharing about the moment that God revealed himself. And the moment light shone into their hearts. And how everything changed. And, you, and we don't understand the timing of the eternal king. But what the word of God does say to us is at just the right time he acts. And at just the right time he intervenes. And at just the right time he saves sinners even when we're dead in our sins. He is the king eternal. The next thing for us to think about is that he is the king invisible. God is invisible. God is spirit. Over and over in the scriptures, we're reminded of this fact. He's not a body. God is spirit, an infinite spirit, omnipresent, always present, filling the creation, always present, Spirit, but invisible to us. This is a fundamental aspect of the nature of God, an incommunicable one for us, difficult for us to grasp, his being invisible. I'm just going to read very briefly from this fantastic book, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. This is an excellent book to give to your friend who maybe is skeptical about faith, who maybe has questions about faith and Uh, I'd really recommend this one. This is excellent. Listen to this. 
when a Russian cosmonaut returned from space, true story, and reported that he had not found God, C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. If there is a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that could be put in a lab and analyzed with empirical methods. He would relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We characters might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. Therefore, in no case could we prove God's existence as if he were an object wholly within our universe, like oxygen and hydrogen or an island in the Pacific. He's not just some object out there to be found floating around. What this Russian cosmonaut imagined, some kind of white-bearded elderly man floating around out there. Oh, look, that must be God. C.S. Lewis makes it clear. No, 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 he's the author of creation. This is his story. He writes it. He's invisible. He's outside of this creation. He is the creator of it. I was listening to an interview with, uh, it's fascinating, with David Attenborough the other day. And, uh, and this interviewer said to David Attenborough, he said, when you speak about the planet and you speak about the amazing animals and things, you use very worshipful language. You describe awe. You describe wonder. Uh, but you never actually go that step further and attribute it to God. Well, how? I understand, though, he said, that you're an agnostic, that you've not settled your mind. It's fascinating. He said, can you just explain that to us? He said, well, I, I would say I do have a sense of a religious experience as I look at the planet and look at the world. And I've never ruled out the possibility of God. And he says, now here's, let me explain it to you. He says, if I go to a termite hill, and I open the top of the termite hill, and I just stand there and I watch it, and I watch all these termites busying themselves, looking after the queen and the pupae and fixing the nest and diligently working. Those termites are absolutely oblivious to me stood over watching them. They don't have the senses to discern my presence. They don't know that I'm there. He said, I can't help but wonder whether or not I lack the senses to discern the presence of the creator watching over me. David Attenborough said this recently. It was profound. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a David Attenborough type, wise old man. When Nicodemus came to Jesus asking him questions, he said, how does someone get into the kingdom of God? Jesus said to him, unless you are born again, for you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Oh, there is a sense that we all fundamentally lack. We all, in a sense, are a little bit like termites, busying ourselves with our lives. But we have this, maybe do we have this sense that there is a God? But who is this God? And what is this, God's, this God like? And how do I see this God? You can't just make yourself see this God. Jesus says you can't, you have to, there has to be a work of the Spirit within you to give you sight and to open up, as it were, 
heaven and for you to see who God is and what God is like. There's something of the invisibility that has to be made visible to your heart. There has to be a work of the Spirit to give you that kind of sight. There has to be a miracle that takes place for this to happen. In the Christian view, however, the ultimate evidence for the existence of God is Jesus Christ himself. If there is a God, we characters in his play have to hope that he puts some information about himself in the play. But Christians believe he did more than give us information. He wrote himself into the play as the main character in history. When Jesus was born in a manger and rose from the dead, he is the one with whom we have to do. You see, there came a moment in time when God determined in his story to enter in. And he doesn't come in glory. And he doesn't come in pomp and circumstance. He comes in humility. He comes in a way that he looked like an ordinary person, only he lived this extraordinary sinless life. And what's more, he lived a life that ended in crucifixion. That's how God cast himself into his creation, into his creation story. Is that what you would have done? This is how he came. This is the life that he came. This is the life that he chose to live. Hebrews 1, verses 2 to 3. In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So when I am made alive by the Spirit of God, I see God and I see Jesus Christ. And to see Jesus Christ as God is to receive spiritual sight For he makes visible to us the invisible God. What's the sense that David Edinburgh lacks? Faith. But that's not just wishful thinking. John Calvin said, faith is a warm embrace of Christ himself. That is, when I know I'm seeing for the first time, it's like suddenly my heart is warmed towards God and towards Jesus It can be infuriating for some who don't have it. Again, C.S. Lewis captures this reality. When Lucy walks through the wardrobe and she enters into Narnia and she comes running back and she's like, I'm back. I've been ages. I'm sorry. I'm back. I met a fawn. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? I, 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 I entered into a new land through the wardrobe. Come and look. And she brings her siblings over and they go into the wardrobe. And what's there but a wooden back panel. What are you talking about, Lucy? It's just an ordinary wardrobe. She's infuriated. And then as the story goes on, we know that they were hiding in the wardrobe. Suddenly it's cold, and what's this wet, damp stuff? And suddenly they enter in, and they say to her, Lucy, we're here too. We believe you now. You may you may feel a little bit like the, the wardrobe's just a wooden panel. And you've got friends 
maybe friends here, and they're saying to you, Jesus is God, Jesus is king, the, Christ, the story of Christianity is true, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a world beyond this one. I've found, I've met Jesus Christ. And you're like, silly nursery stories, this doesn't make sense, what are you talking about? But then one moment, just at the right time, the Spirit of God breathes upon your heart, and you see the kingdom of God. And you see something you've never seen before. And that, for some of you, may even be today. And it may even be now. And to, be, to see God is not to be convinced by the words of, a, of, of any one person, but is to be convinced by the words of God, which we have here, to meet Jesus and to know him and to love him, the image of the invisible God. And then finally, King Immortal. To speak of God as immortal is to speak of God's life, his existence, his permanence. He's unchanging. He, he won't die. He doesn't die. This is the God who is living and constantly living and alive. Jesus came to show us who God is and what God is like. And in John 10 verse 10, he said this, A thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. The king immortal has come to show us what life is. To show us what life is all about. To show us what a full life is all about. What an abundant life is all about. And the great scandal of the gospel is that in order for us to receive his life, he gave of his life. That in order for us to taste immortality, he became mortal. In order for us to know eternal life, he knew in the cross something of the hell-like death that evil and sin and suffering deserves, that he stepped in and took our place. That's the greatest scandal, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that, that in the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, inhabiting the flesh of humanity, was crucified in our place. That's the story, and that's how we enter in, through Jesus through the cross, if you like the wardrobe, you enter through, you come into the kingdom through the crucified Christ who deals with every possible obstacle, everything that would stand in my way from knowing eternal life, from knowing God. At the cross, Jesus suffers in my place and takes my debt and pays the price for my sin and for your sin so that today we can know God. And that is is eternal life, to know God, to know and to love him and to be loved by him forever. If it wasn't for this revelation that Jesus Christ gives us, we would forever be stuck trying to fathom these ideas of God and these notions of God. We'd be forever trying to conceive of it, forever trying to get our head around this God who's the creator, who's invisible, who's immortal, who's eternal. But God hasn't left us just to grope around in the dark. He sent Jesus Christ to be the light that shines, that we might understand and see something of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of his image, the radiance of his glory. He is the image of the invisible God, and he's the one that we turn to and we look to. In Jesus, that which is invisible has been made visible. In Jesus we get to see what God is like.
Hallelujah. We're not left just to figure it out to ourselves. We don't have to rely upon our imagination. The Holy Spirit today draws our attention to the word of God from which we understand and learn who God is and who Jesus is. Why don't we stand? And I invite the band to come.